If you all want to go ahead and turn to Matthew 28, that's where we will be this morning. Many of you all probably already know I didn't grow up in church. I wasn't saved and become a Christian until my early 20s. But Easter Sunday wasn't something foreign to me. You know, I, one of the maybe two times a year that I darkened the door of a church. Uh, because my, my grandmother was Catholic, right? And so if we were going to spend Christmas or Easter with her, we were going to church. And uh, between all the, you know, the, the, the sitting and standing and kneeling and standing and sitting and kneeling and bells and smells and everything else, all I could think about was going home and getting my Easter basket and hunting for Easter eggs, right? Hated it, hated going. What I was looking forward to wasn't the substance of the day. What I was looking forward to was a distraction from the substance of the day. Seems silly now looking back on it, but I didn't know any better then. What we celebrate every Sunday but particularly this Sunday, is more important than the dresses and the outfits and the big meals and the candy and the egg hunts and all the family traditions. This is the main event. This right here. That's the privilege I have now as a believer. I can see that now. I hope you do too. It doesn't get better than this. This is not the appetizer for something better that comes later. Right? This is not an appetizer for the day. It is the main course, the possible, to get together and to come into God's presence and to worship him on this and every other Sunday is the event that we're going to describe this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's read that now. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. 
Do you believe that? Plenty of people will tell you you're a fool to believe that. There's no rational explanation for that. People don't just come back to life. You'd have to, you'd have to believe it blindly. You'd have to remove your brain and, and forget all reasoning and just set all of that aside in order to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. That's what people say. But we don't, we don't believe things blindly as Christians. We're not superstitious. We don't believe in myths and fairy tales and fables. God doesn't call us to be mindless followers of him. He doesn't call us to be mindless followers. You think uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 talks about how we're supposed to be uh, transformed by the renewal of our minds, not the removal of our minds. We're thinking people. And because we are, we can look at this event in human history that we stake all of our hope on, and we can ask the question, did this really happen? And if it did, so what? So what if it did? Those are the two points this morning. Did this really happen? And so what if it did? So first point, did this really happen? Well, for starters, I think it's worth noting you don't have to explain something away that didn't happen. It doesn't take much effort to explain something didn't happen if it didn't really happen. We don't have to work hard at that. The reality is the tomb was empty, and we have to deal with that. Not just as Christians, any thinking person has to deal with the fact that the tomb was indeed empty. You know, the empty tomb wasn't some sort of like private revelation. It wasn't something that, that uh, you know, like a vision or a dream somebody had and then shared it with other people. It was, everyone knew that Jesus was buried, and everyone knew where he was buried, you know, it, it, was a, it was a prominent man that everybody knew, Joseph of Arimathea, right? It was his tomb. Specifically, that, that tomb is where Jesus was buried, right? So this wasn't a take-my-word-for-it kind of thing. This was a see-for-yourself kind of thing. The tomb was, in fact, empty. There's no question about that. The Jews didn't even deny the empty tomb. Did you catch that? Verse 13, let's look at that again. It says, tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's how they're going to deal with it. That, that, that's how they're, uh, they're going to they're deal with this, uh, this empty tomb scenario here, is that uh, the disciples stole the body. Well, we'll, do, we'll deal with some of the other explanations that people come up with for the empty tomb this morning. That's going to be a big part of this first point, did this really happen? But we're going to start with that one. The disciples stole the body. So they were lying about the resurrection. It was a myth they made up in order to what exactly? What did they hope to accomplish by making that up? Ten of the disciples were martyred for their belief in the resurrection. And people say, well, so what? You know, you know people, people die for wrong beliefs all the time. That's true. That's true, they absolutely do. People fly planes into buildings and blow themselves up because they think they're going to be in paradise surrounded by virgins. People do that. They, they, they do. They, they die for their belief in a lie that they believe is true. 
People will be willing to die for a lie they believe is true. But if Jesus was not actually raised from the dead, the disciples knew it. Which means they would have died for something they did not actually believe. That's, that's different, isn't it? That's different than dying for something they mistakenly believed was true, like many people do. That means they willingly died for a lie they knew was a lie. That's preposterous. People will martyr themselves for lies they believe are true, but not for lies they know were lies. The disciples weren't lying. Okay, so maybe the disciples didn't steal the body. Maybe, maybe the Romans did. We know it wasn't the Jews. They're just as puzzled as everyone else in trying to deal with the situation. They're pointing the finger at the disciples. So maybe it was the Romans. Maybe the Romans stole the body. Well, if we're slinging around accusations, we need motive, don't we? So what would have been the motive of the Romans to secretly remove Jesus' body? Long dramatic pause so I can have a sip. We know they wanted Christianity stamped out, didn't they? And as far as they knew, they had. They stamped it right on out. They were expert killers. They had put this situation to bed. Jesus was dead, buried. They wanted him dead. They made sure of it. So wouldn't having his body go missing be the last thing that they would want? Why would they do anything to encourage Christians to insist that Jesus was still alive somehow? Suppose they didn't think of that, though. But, but now, like, the cat's out of the bag. Like, assume they did steal the body, and now all of a sudden, you know, everybody's freaking out. Oh, he's alive, he's walking around, I saw him. Don't you think if they had the body, they'd be real quick to materialize that and shut everybody up and, and, and prove, no, look, he's still dead but they didn't steal the body. The Jews didn't steal his body. The disciples didn't, didn't steal his body. The tomb was empty because Jesus was risen, and his disciples saw him with their own eyes. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Okay, so maybe they saw something, but what they saw wasn't real. Maybe they were hallucinating. That's another explanation people offer who deny the resurrection uh, is that these eyewitness accounts that we had, over 500 of them in fact, that they were hallucinations. But again, we have this problem. If there weren't any eyewitness accounts, we wouldn't have to try so hard to explain this away. But there were lots of them. Lots of people saw Jesus alive. Like I said before, you don't have to try very hard to explain something didn't happen if it didn't really happen. The fact of the matter is, the tomb was empty. Got to deal with it. Got to deal with it. fact of the matter is, a bunch of people say they saw Jesus. Lots of them. Got to deal with it. And so people say, well, the only, the only reasonable explanation is that the disciples were hallucinating. Is it, though? Is that a reasonable explanation? First of all, if there's anything we know about hallucinations... It's that you can't touch them because they're not real. Isn't that the point of the argument? But it says here at the end of verse 9, they saw Jesus, he spoke to them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him. 
Well, maybe they just thought they did. They hallucinated that part too. Okay, well, if there's anything else we know about hallucinations, it's that they are personal. They're individual. They're what's happening in one mind, not something that's, that's shared into uh, a group of people's minds. We don't share a mind. We have our own. We're all grown-ups here. We're thinking people, right? So we know that's kind of silly. It'd be like me walking in this morning and saying, hey, wasn't that an awesome dream I had last night? We don't share a mind. The subjection to the biblical account of the resurrection that they were just hallucinating is groping at some natural explanation. But what's funny about that is that there's no natural explanation for group hallucinations. None. Not only that, it still doesn't explain the empty tomb. We know it wasn't the disciples. We know it wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. Now, what happens at this point, if we're having this conversation, we have somebody who's doubting the resurrection, this fundamental point of our, of our faith, what we're staking all of our hope on, is people get frustrated. They go on the defensive, and they say things like, oh, that's just you know, some legend the big bad corrupt church came up with to control weak-minded people like you. That's, people do say that, you know. Maybe not people you know. People do. People say it. I used to say it. There's two problems with this, though, this idea that the resurrection story is just legend or that it's propaganda. Legends only emerge when you're so far removed from the time of the event that actually happened to be able to make the, the tale plausible. When there's no one around anymore who could say for certain whether it happened or not. A legend is a story coming down from the past, but this story is immediately circulating and is widely circulating just a few years later. So much so that Christians were being executed for saying, saying that they had seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. That's just not how legends work. These are not stories told about an age long past. These were current events being documented shortly after they happened. So maybe it's not a legend then. I'll give you that. Maybe it was propaganda by the church to justify their, their existence. Okay. Political propaganda was a thing in the first century. People could circulate information to promote or publicize a particular political cause. But the Gospels don't present like propaganda. If you and I were to put together a propaganda piece, we would want to look as credible as possible, wouldn't we? If we really need people to believe us and take up our cause, we're going to make ourselves look the best we possibly can, and we're going to make, make our cause look like the most advantageous thing anybody could want to do. The problem is, the disciples don't look like the sharpest knife in the drawer, if you read the Gospels. There's actually a lot documented in the Gospels that discredits the disciples. I mean, even, even Peter, like... Peter, man, even Peter denies Jesus three times. Well, we don't want that in there if we're trying to get people to buy into this thing. We don't want to tell people about that. We wouldn't want to put that in there. We wouldn't want to show people that Jesus' closest followers doubted the resurrection. We wouldn't tell them about doubting Thomas. 
And we certainly wouldn't expect people in the first century to accept the testimony of women who were the first to find the empty tomb. Because that's just not, it's not how things worked back then. We'd definitely leave that part out. We would come up with some other way of explaining that. Because during that time, in, in, this, in this time and place and culture, uh, women weren't valued the way that God values women. The, their testimonies were unreliable. So we're going to lead with that? So if the Gospels and the account of the resurrection is merely propaganda, this is the point, it's the most backwards way of accomplishing the goal of rallying support and forming public opinion anyone could dream of. Here's what we're left with then. It really happened. It really happened. This very unclever band of disciples actually saw the risen Lord. It's not just a myth. It was an event that actually took place, and because it did, we have to deal with it. Let me pause here for a moment and ask you, how have you dealt with it? Have you dealt with it? Something happened here. Something happened that can't be ignored. You can't just pretend nothing happened. Something happened, and you have to deal with it. If it didn't happen, you wouldn't have to deal with it. There'd be nothing to explain. But this must have an explanation. So how do you explain it? The only reasonable explanation is that it actually did happen. Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Just like we confessed in the Apostles' Creed. That's what Christians have believed for going on millennia. So did it really happen? Yes, it did. Point number two, so what? So what if it did? The stuff we've talked about already should appeal to any rational thinking person. The stuff that we're going to talk about now, you can't believe unless the Holy Spirit has given you eyes to see and ears to hear. There's a shift here from the head to the heart. That Jesus died on a cross and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures is fact. That he died and was raised for me is faith. Your belief isn't what makes it true. But it is the difference between Jesus coming back to be with you and Jesus coming back to get you. The resurrection is so significant, y'all, because it moves from God in humility to God in power. The cross shows us Christ in humility, being born a man and sacrificing himself to unite us to himself. The resurrection shows us Christ in power, ruling the nations. There's no election, by the way. You don't get to vote. He's your king whether you like it or not. The difference is whether you are his loyal subject or one of his enemies that he promises to vanquish. So the re resurrection moves us from Christ and humility to Christ and power. The title of the sermon, if you look there, is A Tale of Two Gardens, and now that starts to come into focus and make a little bit more sense. The first garden, the Garden of Eden, was a garden before sin reigned. 
The second garden is a garden after sin's reign was defeated. That's where you are now. What's in the middle, that stuff in the middle, that season where the world was enslaved to sin and death has passed. The man in the first garden, Adam, had a responsibility to guard it and to keep it, to be fruitful and to multiply in it, to tame it and to fill it. In the second garden, the second Adam, Jesus, had the same responsibility to guard it and keep it, to tame it and fill it. And because he has represented man in his obedience and sacrifice, he also represents man in his mission to have dominion in the earth and to fill it with his righteous image bearers. And get this. In John's account of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene's crying outside the tomb because he's gone. And then she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him and assumes he's like a a groundskeeper for the tomb area there. She thinks he's a gardener. What's he doing that would make her think that? Gardening, maybe? Something's changed now. Now that he's defeated sin and he's returned from the dead, there's something different about the created order. God's new creation has begun. Behold, he is making all things new. There's a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where uh, the, the ice and the snow that has covered Narnia for as long as anyone can remember begins to melt. And spring is coming. What was dead and dormant is coming alive. The curse is being lifted. God has dealt with the problem of man's sin and the curse on creation because of it, and he has dealt with death itself. That's what he is risen means. It means something. It's not just something we say. It's not some abstract reality. He wasn't just raised in some spiritual sense either. He was raised bodily. He promises to raise our bodies. You know, Christianity is the only religion that values the physical. You know, every other religion tends to value the spiritual and emphasize the spiritual and, and, and trash the physical. And some religions, the, the physical is actually evil. Christianity says, no, the physical is good. It's made good. It's corrupted. It's disfigured and distorted. But it has been redeemed and consequently will be restored. The body matters. We will be raised bodily like he was. Do you believe that? God's people have always believed that. Always. They've always believed that. Down to their bones. Figuratively and literally. Y'all ever read what the Bible says about bones? This is cool. Watch this. Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 through 26, Joseph is about to die at 110 years old, and he says to his brothers that God will surely visit, visit you. Hebrews use repetition when they want to emphasize something, remember? God will surely visit, visit you and bring you up out of this land, Egypt, 
to the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is long before the exodus out of Egypt, and Joseph is saying, God is going to visit you, really visit you, and didn't he? And he's going to take you from here to the place that he's promised. And then he makes them swear, verse 25, you will carry up my bones from here. Joseph is expecting to make the trip to the promised land with him. I'm coming with y'all. Verse 26, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Exodus 13, 17 through 19, they're, they're giddy up, let's go, we're out of here, right? We're, we're finally on our way. They're getting out of Dodge, okay? And they're about to leave Egypt. Oops, don't forget Joseph. Get, get, get Joseph's bones. He's coming with. Pack him up. Joshua chapter 24, 32, still carrying the bones of Joseph. 500 years later. 1 Samuel 31, the bodies of Saul and his men are hung as trophies by the Philistines after they were conquered. And the Israelites take the bodies down, they burn the flesh, and they buried the bones in Jabesh. 2 Samuel 21, David goes back to Jabesh Gilead, digs up the bones of Saul, Jonathan, and the others hung on the wall, and buries them in Benjamin and in Israel. He goes back across the Jordan River and brings them over to where they belong. This is a cool study. This is a cool study. There's more verses like this I wish I could share with you. 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 13, uh, 2 Kings 23, Ezekiel 37, and others. The point is this. God's people have always had a correct concept that there would be a physical resurrection of the dead, although they didn't, they didn't have the fullness of that concept. We do. We have the fullness of that concept. That's why we celebrate Easter. Isn't it? Isn't that the reason for the new dresses and the outfits and the big meals and the Easter egg hunts? If not, then why do you do it? I'm not saying, y'all, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. My family's going to do some of those things this afternoon. All I'm saying is, those traditions are empty without an empty tomb. So the question we started with was, did this really happen? And the second question was, so what if it did? So here's the so what. Y'all are going to die. You're all going to die. Oh, that's bright, chipper Easter sermon. But y'all, we're thinking people, remember? Our religion doesn't have to pretend. We don't play make-believe. God is the God of truth, and that's the truth. You're all going to die. But if Christ died for you and you are reconciled to God by his blood through faith, you share in his death and resurrection, and you have this hope. That though you die and will be buried, you too will be raised to rest with him in the land that he has promised, and he has promised you the world. With him in it. Christian burial is not the disposal of a body. It is the deposit of a body for safekeeping. Because one day Jesus is coming back to make a withdrawal. 
to take us, all of us, bodily, all of us, to be with him forever in a physical place that he never gave up on, but that he restored so we can enjoy perfect fellowship with him in it, like it was in the first garden when God walked with man in the cool of the day. That's what we have to look forward to. We say on Easter Sunday, he is risen. And then someone replies, he is risen indeed. That's an old, old greeting dating back to the fourth century. And that's, that's awesome. But I would suggest we add, and behold, he is making all things new. I would suggest we add, and behold, he is making all things new. Because that's why he was risen. That's why he was risen. The resurrection wasn't Jesus' final act. It was the beginning of the final act. They knew that then, when they used to greet each other that way. He is risen. And I think it's easy for us to forget it now. But he is making all things new. If you believe the resurrection this morning, you must believe that too. So go party, go celebrate, go eat rich food and drink your best wine. Let your heart be glad because you know this is true. It really did happen, and you know why it matters. Let's pray. Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from before all time, you had this plan of redemption. That included you, Lord Jesus, coming and taking man's place so that you could do what we couldn't, which is obey perfectly. So that you could die the death that we deserve for our sin. So that you could conquer sin and the grave. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you apply the benefits of that redemption to us. Father, I just ask that you would do that this morning, in this place, and in your church, all over this country and around the world, would you open eyes? Would you give eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you let the truth of your gospel take root in their hearts and to continue having your desired effect on the people and nations around us for your glory and for our good? Lord, would you do that? Would you do it in a big way this morning? Not because we're owed it. We'll love you if you don't. You're sovereign. But God, astonish us. <laughs> astonish us with your amazing grace every day in big ways and in small ways. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.